Welcome to the podcast of Tech EU. I am your host, Andre Degelor. It has been a tough time for so many people now, including entrepreneurs and other people working in European tech, and we at Tech EU hope that you are able to enjoy this podcast from the comfort of your home and that you can take care of yourself and people around you. But for so many brave people working in care and critical infrastructure, staying home, of course, is not an option, and we appreciate this so much, and we are incredibly thankful for all your work. So today I am happy to be joined remotely, of course, by two great co-hosts, Natalie Novik, the Chief Community Officer at Startup Boost, and Robin Wouters, the founding editor of TechEU. Hey, thanks a lot for joining today. Thanks for having me back, and it's a pleasure to be on again. Same for me. Thanks for having me back. I'm waving from Brussels. So if you've been with us uh, for a while, you, of course, know that Natalie used to co-host this podcast on a weekly basis. But uh, Natalie, what is it you're doing now? What did you leave us for? Oh, okay. So I am running a a global arm of a pre-accelerator program called Startup Boost. We have uh, locations, city locations um, in the U.S., Europe, and in Canada, but these have all had to go um, online into virtual programs uh, thanks to our COVID pandemic. We also have a global platform for founders from everywhere, and we have over 55 teams on that platform right now and from every different continent, and I lead activities over there. Uh, bringing on different speakers, mentors, helping them find support. Um, Really enjoying um, my work there right now. But it's great to be back um, here for this podcast. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, it is. I'm having a great time. And we actually built the online um, remote first part of our platform before uh, the COVID crisis. And it seems like community is something we need more than anything these days. And it's wonderful that um, we actually have something um, to provide support for people. Um, but uh, the, it is it is very challenging times right now. Amazing. So congratulations uh, for uh, getting this uh, this great, uh, great work done. Now, our main topic uh, to talk about today has a lot to do with the community, and it is how European VCs change their ways due to the changes around us that are related to the outbreak of COVID-19. And I'm also going to touch uh, my favorite topic of e-scooter companies and their prospects in Europe as more and more countries go on full or partial lockdowns. But before all that happens, let's have a five-minute break for a news recap from our reporter, Annie Musgrove. Hi, I'm Annie Musgrove of TechEU, and here are some of the most important news stories in European tech. On Monday, the competition watchdog in France fined Apple 1.1 billion euros, saying it was guilty of anti-competitive behavior toward its distribution and retail network. This is the biggest fine ever levied by the French antitrust body, Reuters reports. In its decision, the French regulator said Apple imposed prices on retail premium resellers so that the reselling prices were aligned with those charged by the company in its own shops or on the internet. Amazon, Netflix, and YouTube are reducing video quality in Europe, Reflexive News reports. Amazon and Netflix announced that they would automatically reduce streaming quality in the EU, while YouTube said that it would make standard definition the default on its platform. These measures come after the EU Internal Market Commissioner, Thierry Breton, 
called to, quote, ensure the smooth functioning of the internet during the battle against the virus propagation. In other news, the telecom provider Orange called on Disney to delay the launch of Disney Plus in France for a few weeks. OneWeb, the London-based satellite operator backed by SoftBank, is mulling a possible bankruptcy filing to address a cash crunch as it grapples with high costs and stiff competition, according to a report from Bloomberg. OneWeb makes so-called low-Earth orbit satellites that provide high-speed communications. So far, the company has raised about $3.3 billion from investors including SoftBank, Airbus, and Qualcomm. Finnish health tech startup Aura, well-known for its wellness tracking ring and app, has secured $28 million in Series B funding. The investors in the round include Forerunner Ventures, Jack Dorsey's Square, and Gradient Ventures. American neuroscientist Matthew Walker, the best-selling author of Why We Sleep, will be joining the company as chief science advisor. Aura provides a smart ring and app delivering insights to inform sleep and health habits, giving users daily feedback to improve their health and to better understand their bodies. The company has sold 150,000 rings to date. U.S. companies Lime and Bird are pulling their e-scooters off the roads in Europe and elsewhere due to the coronavirus outbreak, the Financial Times reports. With self-isolation recommendations and full or partial lockdowns in many cities, demand for e-scooters has plummeted. No date was scheduled by either company for the return of e-scooters in any of the affected cities. Meanwhile, the UK is getting closer to allowing e-scooters on its roads, The Guardian reports. The Department for Transport has published a proposal open for consultation, which includes changing legislation to allow e-scooters. At first, the idea is to designate several trial zones for testing innovative transportation modes, from e-scooters to drones. It's still, however, going to take at least a few months to amend these regulations, and of course, a lot depends on how the coronavirus pandemic will pan out in the UK and globally in the next few weeks. The European Commission set aside a budget of 164 million euros to quickly fund innovative companies fighting the COVID-19 outbreak. The Commission called on innovators to apply for fast-track funding, which has become part of the European Innovation Council Accelerator Program. The deadline for this call was last Friday, so we can expect to hear the first update soon. Finally, Israel-based Checkmarks is being purchased by PE firm Hellman & Friedman at a valuation of $1.15 billion, CNN reports. This is the largest acquisition of an application security company ever. Checkmarks clients, which allegedly include at least 40 companies from the Fortune 1000, come to the firm to mitigate risk, secure code, and embed security into the software development lifecycle. Checkmarks was founded in 2006 and employs more than 700 people. These are some of the most important European tech news stories from the week of March 16th. I'm Annie Musgrove. Now back to Andre. Annie, thank you so much for the great recap. And now we can dive into today's topic. So among other things, it started with a tweet by Matt Clifford, co-founder of Entrepreneur First, who wrote the following. I'm going to quote. Hearing about some horribly exploitative behavior from VCs in the current environment. By the time this is through, we are going to have a much longer list of people we cannot recommend our founders work with. So Robin, you also ran a post on TechEU encouraging founders and other VCs to send you examples of bad behavior like that. Have you actually heard from many people yet? Not a lot, I have to admit. Um, I have some calls set up for this week uh, with some people uh, that I want to talk 
about this a little bit more, uh, both founders and investors. Um, so I'll see what that yields. But for now, uh, not many reactions, I have to say. Uh, Natalie, you've also been in contact with uh, with founders uh, over the past uh, years, I, I guess. So you you uh, you always have some stories to tell, uh, I'm sure. But uh, have you heard uh, anything about uh, this sort of behavior so far? Yes, I have uh, heard some things, and some founders have reached out to me. So I'm uh, close with lots of early stage founders across Europe and and beyond, and I've been hearing some very worrying things. And I think what uh, is most difficult is that it's a difficult time for everyone right now. But founders that were going into negotiations are hearing um, really kind of the close down of of some of those negotiations. And we've also, um, one example, we had kind of a progress on a term sheet was at kind of an advanced stage. And then um, it kind of just stopped and said, you know, well, um, we'll come back to you in two weeks on that and we'll have to hold things here. Um, but for early stage companies, this is a really vulnerable time, um, even more so um, than anything that anyone's really dealt with before. And then also, we've I've heard an example uh, firsthand of uh, founders that were going into uh, really early friends and family rounds. And those have all um, kind of really evaporated in the in the last couple of weeks, um, which is kind of something you could expect um, with with this um, this time right now. Yeah, so I guess it is happening. It is happening on a reasonably large scale. And then the question is, why do we not hear why do we not hear uh, names, for example, and why, for example, not too many people uh, decided to reach out to, to Robin after the call to kind of come forward and speak about it? Robin, do you have a theory here? Well, I think there's a couple of explanations. Like, first of all, um, it's early days. So a lot of these founders are still in negotiation for investment. Uh, a lot of the VCs probably haven't had the time to reach out to all of their portfolio companies and all their founders to explain what they're doing and why and how their founders should behave in an environment like this. Uh, I'm pretty sure all the VCs are also scrambling to understand what is happening uh, on a global level because... They also have their own investors. They have their own LPs who are much more dependent on, on the overall economy and stock markets um, for deployment of capital. So it's a, it's a really, really complicated uh, system. So it, it doesn't really boil down to very simple explanations, both on the good side and the bad side. And, and as always, you have you know, good and bad founders, you have good and bad VCs, you have good and bad LPs. So it, it, and there's everything in between. So it's a, a really messy, complex situation sometimes. It's also, it's also a matter of perspective. If a founder, you know, is looking for investment and he finally gets a deal and a term sheet and then something like the coronavirus hits and the investor pulls back, it might be for the right reasons. For the founder, it's very annoying and it's very, very um, threatening to his business, especially if it's early stage and he really needs the investment on a short term. But you can't really blame an investor for, for making a decision as long as there hasn't been anything signed yet because there's a lot of uncertainty in the market and they also have to you know, take into account their partners, their other portfolio companies, their LPs. Um, so I think that's, you know, add all, all those things up and it's not as uh, easy as it seems to get to get um, people to sort of testify on bad behavior. And, and I think it's really important to note here is that there is a spectrum of what bad behavior looks like. And I think what the kind of the most egregious 
form of bad behavior for a VC would be renegotiating a term sheet that's already been signed. That is, I think, something that came up in the VC Twitter and and what Matt was really alluding to with his tweet and also some of the uh, VCs that were responding to it also alluding to this happening. That kind of the the most worst thing you could do um, in terms of bad behavior is amend or change a term sheet after it has been signed by all parties. And apparently that has been happening. And that is um, that is very worrying, I think, as an ecosystem to, to confront. And there are very valid reasons why you would renegotiate or you change terms before things are signed. Uh, COVID has um, really changed the markets. And it Unfortunately, it's really changed the valuations of some of these companies, um, um, sadly, for, for the worst right now. Um, and so before anything signed, of course, that there is still room for negotiation. And it's annoying, as Robin, you said. But after things have already been signed to change it, then that is really worrying. Yeah, that bad behavior for sure. Um, the question is, what did they actually ch- change in the term sheet? Is it the valuation? Is it the share structure? Is it the founders' preferences? Is it the, you know, the the the, the vesting? What has actually been changed? Um, and that's the things we don't hear. We hear about bad behavior, but then we don't hear who's doing it, and they, we don't hear what they're doing exactly. Even if they change the term sheet after it's been signed, it's very very um, ethically wrong. Um, but you'd have to sort of look at the details and and see. What have they actually changed that makes it such bad behavior? And that's a matter of perspective. And that's where VCs, I think, have to weigh in because they know all these situations from before and they can very easily draw comparisons. Like this is what it was like before and this is how the situation's changed. But if they don't come forward with detailed explanations about what practices have just been changed or what has you know, been different about the, the behavior of some VCs that they've seen, it's very difficult for us to, to judge and compare. So in that thread, this, um, I'll quote from it, um, from Matt Clifford, several examples, but worse so far is calling a founder to say they're having the valuation of a signed term sheet 72 hours after full form legal docs were meant to be signed, end quote. So that I think everyone can agree is, is pretty terrible. But what is really difficult is who who was responsible for that? Nobody in the ecosystem outside of those um, parties involved knows what happened. Knows who it was who was involved there. So, what's to say that a founder down the line will go into an arrangement with with that VC, not knowing that this was in their history? Yeah, and I've been having a little bit of a debate on Twitter about this over the weekend as well, because you know I've been talking to people like uh, like James Wise from Bolton, who was uh, actively talking about this on Twitter, so I can call, well, I can name him. Um, and also uh, Gil Dipner from uh, Angular Ventures is very, very um, speaking openly uh, on Twitter about this. Uh, Brian Caulfield wrote a, a media post about this as well. Um, and so the debate that I had was about naming names and actually naming the bad practices. And, and, and this is where I sort of don't really agree with a lot of them where they try to keep this information sort of very, very close to their chest. They want to protect their founders. They want to protect their circle of co-investors, but they don't share that information with the wider public, which I don't think is very protective of the wider community of entrepreneurs in Europe. You want to call bad apples exactly what they are publicly because otherwise they have no incentive to change their behavior. They have no way of other co-investors that might work with these VCs at a later time to know what they've done in, in times of crisis is like this. So so there is an argument to be made to, to make this information 
somewhat more public than than it is now. Yeah, and and I agree with you there because ultimately what a startup or entrepreneurial community is supposed to be is a place where social capital is exchanged. And that includes kind of information on one another and also giving people the opportunity to amend and change their ways and their behavior. Because what you have happen if you're only sharing this sort of information through in-group networks is that you have all of those founders or early stage people on the outside who don't have access to that information. Those are the ones that are already the most vulnerable in your ecosystem who will eventually will continually be marginalized and who won't ever have access to that information. Um, and that's what I think is really sad because what ultimately a uh, ecosystem should do is try a rising tide should lift all boats. And so if we all need can grow together and um, help everyone um, be better actors for, for a whole, the ecosystem as a whole. Yep, fully agree. Um, playing devil's advocate a little bit. I know VC is a very, very small world. Their LPs are watching, other co-investors are watching. Um, so if, you, if you're the one to go out and sort of name names and to really name bad practices and put a name to it, uh, it's also probably going to affect on you poorly in the investment community. So I get why. I do understand it. Um, the thing that frustrates me the most is then why make noise about it on Twitter at all? Why say that there's bad behavior and not name names or detail the practices? Because that's sort of self-serving. In my in my humble opinion, you're sort of calling out bad behavior without actually calling it out. You're just saying there's something bad happening in the market, which makes me look good, look good because I'm not the one doing it. But then if we don't know the details and it's only hearsay, then we don't know anything more than we knew before you tweeted. Then why tweet about it? Why do passive aggressive tweets about something that is that is so vital to the community? That's what I don't understand. Yeah. Well, maybe the the effort of doing that is, you know, someone reads that and if, if that you have you kind of have some twinge of, you know, maybe this tweet is about me. Maybe I was the I and and it, you you that's their way of trying to sanction that behavior in a very abstract or um around the block kind of way. That's that's fair, but if the two tweets later the guy says I'm not going to call out anyone publicly, then what's the incentive for that bad behavior behavior to stop? Like literally, if I would see that, I would think like, "Woo, I got away with it. I can do more of this." Yeah, yeah, it's it's very frustrating. So, so how do we create a glass like glass door, but uh, but for uh, VCs and founders and all that? Well, you know what I'm going to say. One of our angel investors is uh, Adeo Ressi. He's uh, pretty well known in Silicon Valley uh, as a guy behind the Founder Institute. Before the Founder Institute, though, he created a website called The Funded, which was exactly that. It was Glassdoor for the VC community in the Valley in the beginning. And then it sort of you know grew globally. It's a very old website. I think it's pretty much defunct. Like It's still around, but the design is very, uh, very 10, 12, 12 oh my years God, ago. The, the design is just a monument <laughs> to the time when it was created. I, I, I don't uh, want it changed in any way, shape, or form. It's great. But I really, like, I, I'm hoping to reach out to him and I hope that I get a response really quickly to see what happened to the, the site and what also happened when it was still alive because I know he got a lot of attention from it, both good and bad, when it was happening. For the entrepreneurs, it was a godsend because you could sort of identify bad investors before uh, before talking to them, right? So now, but, but you can also see why as an investor, you're poorly rated, but then you change your team or you hire new people, or you implement new practices. It's not always reflected in those ratings. So there's a, you know, there's an argument you can make to both sides, but I'll try to reach out to him and see what he, uh, what he thinks about continuing it or setting up a European version. 
knows? Yeah, that's a that, that's a fair point about that. Uh, if you change something, then it's not reflected in that sort of uh, rating. But at the same time, it's also not it's also not reflected in those uh, closed uh, uh, closed community wide uh, sort of blacklists uh, that uh, some VCs would have. Right? Basically, this kind of thing would not give any opportunity to the VC in question to respond to uh, to any accusation, to respond to uh, any sort of uh, things posted about them. Right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. and I feel like there, there I know that there have been other examples of people of folks trying to do um, this same sort of thing. But what happens is that it's very difficult to ensure anonymity is that, you know, negotiations are it are very personal and there's not so many. So people are somewhat um, identifiable. So you never can be completely frank or uh, transparent about those dealings when eventually it could come down, come back to you. Um, and you never know how that will, will, will look for you if you're in the ne- have to raise again um, um, in the future and, and what that will look like. Yeah. And I hope that once this storm, uh, this Corona storm subsides eventually, which it hopefully will very soon, uh, which we don't know, but, but when it does, I'm hoping that some founders or some investors will will step forward then and say like listen this is the kind of behavior we saw during the crisis that is unacceptable that is ethically wrong that is uh you know it's not something that's good for good for the community for the entrepreneurs and not good for us investors as a as an asset class and there's also i think founders should be speaking out founders should share their experiences as much as they can within their own communities of founders uh, because there's two sides to each of these negotiations. So there's one chance for the VCs to come out publicly and share what they've been seeing, um, but founders can also share what they've been experiencing too. And I hope some more will reach out to you, Robin, because it, it is a, ver- a very important message that needs to get out there. I agree. Um, but you have to say for first-time founders or founders for early stage, they don't even know what the standards are. They, they might not even know what the what the going practices are. Uh, so it's very difficult for them to compare. So it's sort of difficult to put the onus only on founders. It also has to be the, the investors, you know. Right. Natalie, you also quoted in our show notes, you quoted another tweet from uh, James Weiser. Uh, do you want to quote it uh, on, uh, on the podcast and then we can discuss? Sure. Um, and uh, James Weiss is from Balderton and he writes on Twitter, similarly, we've seen some appalling behavior by funds this week, pulling out of signed contracts, etc. General rule has been if a fund is greater than five years old, they stick to their word. Lots of noisy new entrants to VC that are going to be remembered for how they acted in this period, end quote. This is really interesting. What do you make of it? Well, he might be right, he might be wrong, but he's also uh, uh, biased, of course, because he works for a VC that's a lot older than five years and, and they're, they're competing with these young firms. So it's, it's sort of in his interest to say something like that as well. Um, that doesn't mean he's wrong, though, because I can see how inexperienced uh, funds, because a lot of these, these funds have been like the new funds and then the very small seed funds have been set up by entrepreneurs. They might not even know that they're doing something that goes against you know, investor logic and, and something that's not founder friendly because they've only had to sign one or two uh, as, a, as an entrepreneur. So they might not be aware of the, the best practices in this in this scenario. Um, but of course, you know, how are we going to know which funds are actually doing this behavior? Again, if there are no names being named, then it's just hearsay. And then they can say, you know, any fund uh, from a certain country or they can say funds under a certain size or fund- what does it matter if they don't, if they don't share what, or who the investor actually is, then what's the point? 
Yeah. And I think for founders, uh, the takeaway here is to do as much due diligence on your investors or prospective investors um, that you can. I don't know how many people will be looking to raise right now. It's, it is going to be a very challenging environment, but uh, it always underlines the point of really doing um, your homework and really trying to know um, as much as you can before um, getting to this stage. Yeah. Also, just want to term sheets they're being signed. Also, just want to point out maybe to to end the discussion that you know VC is not a charity business. They have their own investors. They have to take into account their relationship with them as well. Uh, that these investments are going to slow down and that it's going to be difficult to maintain the same valuations as even ten days ago. It's it's perfectly normal. It, it's perfectly fine to to discuss valuations. Doing it after you sign a term sheet is a different story. Um, but it's perfectly normal for for investors to slow down in this period in the same way that LPs are going to probably slow down their investments in new funds like it's just the way it goes it's a it's a crisis for the for the world it's not specific to to early stage founders at all so yeah and i think something to that point um Brian Caulfield of Draper Spree came out with a really great post on Medium kind of in response to some of this activity that's been going on. And something he points out there too is that LPs might not be holding up their side of the bargain um, when it comes to dispersing funds to VCs. So their VCs might be having their terms cut too, um, but we, that's something that um, is, is a whole another aspect of it. But just on that point, um, it's it's realistic for um, VCs to, to really be testing the waters during this time. And um, it's hitting um, everyone um, it, very hard. That's true, but it's still the entrepreneurs who end up uh, in the worst situation here, unfortunately. I mean, in general, yes. If you're an entrepreneur now working on medical technology or maybe like video conferencing for doctors, suddenly you have more interest. You know, so it depends on sort True. of the market that you're in. In general, of course, they're sort of end of the line when it comes to funding because it goes from LPs to VCs to them. Uh, so, of course, they're going to be hit the hardest like as a, as a group. But, you know, it, it also forces them to be more creative and to maybe cut their cash flow, maybe change their projections to look for creative ways to, to deal with this crisis. And maybe something good comes out of that as well. We all know the stories about how big companies were created during crisis times rather than, than after before. So... You know, it, it all depends on how long is this going to last because we're just at the very, very beginning of this. This might go on for, what, months, years? Nobody really knows. And the economic mm -hmm. impact that it has now is also going to be multiplied. And it's going to have like long-term long effects. It's going to ripple through the global economy for, for many, many months and maybe even years to come. So we don't, really, we don't know how much of a problem this is going to be on, on how many mm -hmm. levels. And it actually might be not necessarily such a bad time if you are a startup that has good cash flow, that has traction, that is operating at really lean um, costs and has some um, level of runway uh, ahead of you. Um, I've seen some estimates from VCs 12 to 24 months having um, in the bank in terms of runway. Unfortunately, some people, it, it does look like there will be a lot of layoffs um, of staff. Um, but might also be an opportunity to pick up some really great talent. Um, so it, how founders respond to this situation really will tell um, a lot um, in terms of um, what sort of potential is out there. Yeah, I'm so much looking forward to interviewing founders, entrepreneurs at the end of it, just to find some great stories of uh, people who survived, who persevered, and maybe created something new this time. Likewise. 
Right. So we can move forward uh, with the agenda. And uh, Natalie, you wanted to discuss uh, one of the stories from the recap, right? And then I will talk about uh, e-scooters later. Right. Yeah. And I think um, it was great that Annie brought this up in the news recap and also this fact, touching on our previous discussion, that VCs raising funds are also going to be having a tough time right now. Um, something that I noticed from um, kind of the consequences of what's been happening over the last couple of weeks is that SoftBank is looking for $10 billion to support their portfolio companies. What you have is kind of a circling of the wagons of, you know, funds will continue to be supporting their existing portfolio. Um, but when it comes to topping up the vision fund, SoftBank companies, a number of them are really hurting right now, impacted by the COVID crisis. And Annie mentioned the case of OneWeb, but other firms in the fund's portfolios are also in some dire straits. So the first one is OEO, the fund's star hotel chain, and they're cutting over 5,000 jobs around the world. And the next is Get Around, which is their car sharing platform Form, which acquired their European competitor, Drivey, last year. They are also looking for a buyer. And elsewhere across the portfolio, Berlin-based travel platform, Get Your Guide, and they raised $484 million from SoftBank last year. But what they're facing, uh, the founder is calling a nuclear winter for online travel. And who knows how long um, this COVID crisis will, will last and how it will affect firms like Get Your Guide. Oh, and SoftBank was also planning on bailing out their portfolio company, WeWork, um, at a very high um, amount. And WeWork's had a, a number of challenges lately trying to keep their offices open during the crisis. Um, but thanks to COVID, um, unfortunately, um, they will not be receiving a bailout from SoftBank. So really wondering what's going to happen um, next with WeWork. Oh, I haven't actually, I haven't heard a lot about WeWork lately. So maybe I've been missing some uh, some news, but this, this sounds pretty dire. Yeah, they were expecting a, a, a big cash injection. Um, the company is running at, at a huge loss right now. Um, so um, that doesn't seem to be happening. So I wonder what is some of the casualties of COVID seem to look like a lot of these fun, firms that are running with huge deficits that aren't uh, getting a lot of revenue. Um, so it'd be really interesting to see who makes it. Doesn't necessarily mean the most well-funded are the ones that will survive. Certainly. So speaking of well-funded startups that don't necessarily make a lot of profits, I can uh, come to my favorite topic of, uh, of e-scooters. <laughs> so... Uh, and uh, the question is, how are they going to survive uh, this uh, new reality that uh, is uh, partial or full lockdowns that so many cities are across Europe and globally go into? So on Tuesday, <clears throat> first of all, it was reported by the FT that uh, the American companies, Lyman Bird, they are pulling most of their e-scooters off the streets, both in the US and uh, in Europe. And that's, of course, not very surprising because the demand has fallen sharply due to the measures that have been taken around the world to control the outbreak. Lime says that it has suspended its service in 18 European countries, a bird in 20. And the operations of Cirque, which was also recently acquired by Bird, have been put on hold. So as far as I understand, uh, this basically means that uh, both Bird and Lime are currently not working in Europe at all. I don't think they have uh, any 
operations left. Uh, as for the European e-scooter operators, uh, they are now in a similar situation, but they are uh, doing a little bit uh, differently. Uh, Tier Mobility has paused its operations in Italy, France, Spain, Switzerland and Austria, but at the same time it is still keeping what it calls a reduced fleet, active in Germany, Sweden, Norway, Finland and the United Arab Emirates. Another major European firm, Voy, has just announced, and we're recording it on Sunday, March 22nd, so it's only announced today that it's pausing operations in most of the markets that it's active on. It will keep going only in Copenhagen, Helsinki, Gothenburg, Stockholm and Oslo, as well in three German cities, in Hamburg, Nuremberg and Munich. So in all these cities, Voy will still uh, drastically reduce its uh, fleet size. I've also looked for announcement from uh, Dot and Wind, that's to other uh, European operators, but it seems like these two are not suspending operations anywhere as of yet, and DOT also said that it is going to keep minimal fleets in Paris and Lyon. Uh, so the question is, of course, how long can an e-scooter company keep going uh, like this for? And there's been quite a bit of skepticism as to the viability of these uh, businesses in general, as the margins are quite thin and uh, most of the players in the industry have raised a lot of VC money to support their rollout plans. And the only good news for now, I guess, for e-scooter operators in Europe is that, uh, Annie also mentioned in the recap, uh, there is a big chance that by the time that the world goes back to normal, or at least closer to normal, the UK may already have regulations in place to allow e-scooters, finally. So not sure if it's a big consolation uh, for the companies, though. Natalie Robin, what do you think? Well, the, the other thing that might be good for them is that uh, there's a lot more consciousness about the way that we move around in cities uh, and our, our you know carbon footprint. So it might be a boon for them if they survive this crisis and people are more sort of uh, in tune with uh, what's happening on the sustainability front, the mobility. Um, so maybe it's good for them in that way. Uh, I also had one. Your question is how long can they keep going like this for? My question yep. is where are all these e-scooters? Like if they take them off the market in 18 cities at a time, like where do they store them? Are they like warehouses full of e-scooters right now just like gathering dust? Like how does that work? I guess so. I really don't know. I guess, I guess that's the case. There, There is. And I saw a crazy picture on Twitter of one of these warehouses before. Andre, you would really have enjoyed it. Um, but yeah, they're out there. They're out there. And if anyone has, uh, well, they're in has there. been to one of these, <laughs> please share it because, um, yeah, it's crazy. But Robin, on to that point about sustainability and, and really thinking about the long-term effects of this crisis, I think one of the greatest outcomes will be uh, people will probably be flying less. And something that we noticed with, with the early research that was done in Paris on e-scooters is that most of the people riding them um, were tourists. So I think that's something that that might have a, an impact for their for their bottom line. And also, if this however long this goes on, more people have set up home working infrastructure for working at home. So they might not be needing it for those last mile rides um, to get to the office in the morning. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I think we already started seeing sort of a wave of consolidation in this space. My guess is we're going to see an accelerated uh, wave like that in the next, I don't know, one or two years, and that there's going to be only a few companies doing this on a global scale rather than lots of lots of smaller players. But that's anyone's guess, really. 
Oh yeah, and I've just realized that uh, I think we owe uh, many of the European e-scooter companies a shout out because uh, from what I saw on uh, their uh, Twitter and uh, other social accounts today is that most of the ones that are still working, they are uh, doing all sorts of uh, programs uh, uh, made for uh, care workers and critical infrastructure workers to use uh, these uh, e-scooters either for free or cheaper uh, to be able still to get uh, to get to work. And this, uh, this is a great effort uh, I think we all should uh, thank these companies for that. Absolutely. Yep. I have a question for you, Andre. Go why, ahead. Why do you talk about e-scooters so much on the podcast? <laughs> I don't know. I just, I just somehow, somehow, I find it an eastern interesting topic. Like it happens to me that this is basically the way the the way I am. Like whenever I find something that's uh, interesting, I kind of uh, stick to it for for a long long time so i i used to have like a website uh, where i wrote a lot about netbooks for example 10 years ago if you remember those so th- this is something this is something similar i guess but okay. i think it's because andre secretly really is very skeptical about e-scooters um and oh, especially Especially from coming from the Netherlands, where where the the bicycle is the king, e-scooters are basically threatening that established hierarchy. Uh, so I think that's part of the reason why Andre's so fascinated by them. I very much disagree. I think Andre's uh, very much in love with e-scooters, and I think he <laughs> wants to build build a warehouse to store all of these suspended scooters so he can have more uh, to look at every day and to admire them and touch them and. Dream of yeah, that. Maybe, or maybe I'm just jealous because uh, in the Netherlands we still don't have any e-scooters at all. It's still not legal. Oh, it's not legal yet. So many oh. different options. No, no, it's not. Well, you should start a lobbying organization on behalf <laughs> of the e-scooter company. <laughs> I I wouldn't be lobbying for though, so I don't think it's a good idea. Come on, you're a fan. You know it. What would the podcast be without e-scooters? <laughs> I mean. <laughs> I, I'm glad to see that some things haven't changed since I left Andre and that e-scooters are still the topic of the day. <laughs> there you go. I'm looking forward to next week when we're going to talk about e-scooters some more, but from a different <laughs> angle. <laughs> no, I don't know. I'm just kidding around. Great. I've been I've, I've been missing both of you on the podcast so much. Uh, uh, nobody's been making fun of, uh, fun of me over the last few weeks. This is, this is just this is just dull. Yeah, I've been missing myself a lot on this podcast too. <laughs> So we're about we're about to fix that. We're about to fix that. For <laughs> great, sure. great, great. Now, before we wrap up today's episode, though, I really wanted to add something more uplifting to the mix. Well, more uplifting than making fun of me, I suppose. And uh, <laughs> although I don't speak a word of the Finnish language, I loved the track on SoundCloud that features a reassuring speech of the country's prime minister, Sanna Marin. So let's listen to what's called now Sanna Wave together, and then we can wrap it up officially. Jotta suomalaisille ihmisille nyt tulee oikea kuva, mikä on tarpeetonta oleilua ja ennen muuta, mikä sitä ei ole. Kyllä suomalaiset ihmiset saavat ja voivat huomenakin käydä ulkoiluttamassa koiraa. Kyllä suomalaiset ihmiset saavat ja voivat huomenakin käydä ulkoiluttamassa koiraa. Käydä puolisonsa kanssa kävelyllä. Istahtaa puiston penkille, käydä puolisonsa kanssa kävelyllä. Istahtaa puiston penkille, voivat odottaa joukkoliikennevälineen saapuvaksi. 
voivat käydä ruokakaupassa, apteekissa ja toimia elämässään sillä tavalla, että he voivat oman hyvinvointinsa turvata. So this is it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Please help us spread the word, tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse, that is sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions and opinions at podcast at tech EU. Stay safe, stay healthy, take care of yourself and people around you. Natalie, Robin, thank you so much again for joining. Enjoy the rest of uh, of your week and I do hope that you join me again soon. Thanks for having us. It was really fun. <laughs> thank you. Stay at home, everyone. Indeed. Yeah. Have a good week and we're going to talk to you next Monday. Bye-bye. <laughs>